Amen and amen. Well, good morning. Happy post-Thanksgiving. My name is J.P. Poison, and I have the great privilege of bringing you God's word this morning. I'm excited to do so. It's great to see you all here this morning. Let me get my stuff set up a little bit. Mm. Well, Thanksgiving has officially passed us, which means a couple of things for us in this room. It is now perfectly legal to play Christmas music. Whether you're riding in the car or, or at home, but I'm not quite sure about the workplace quite yet. You might need to double check. But also by now, most of our families have put up their Christmas tree. Quick confession, the Poison Christmas tree went up about two weeks ago and somebody already put Christmas lights on the house before trick-or-treaters went to bed. So um, needless to say, we're a little excited in our home. But since Thanksgiving Day is behind us, it also means we can watch all the great Christmas classics. It's a Wonderful Life. Miracle on 34th Street, Polar Express, and maybe even Gremlins, if you remember that one. But the one thing I most get excited about after Thanksgiving, even more than the leftovers, is that Christmas is next. I do have a question for all the kiddos. How many sleeps until Christmas Day? 27. 26 is close. I might be off by one, but that's one of my students, so I'll, I'll go with her. You're welcome, parents, for the countdown. But as followers of Jesus, we know that Christmas is more than just a day, but it's a season. And it's a season that goes far beyond the 25th of December. It's a season that has the capacity to recalibrate and refocus our hearts and our minds to the true meaning of Christmas. It's a season of expectation and of longing. This season of expectation and longing is traditionally called Advent on the church calendar around the world. Advent has taken many different forms over the centuries depending on the church, depending on the culture, and depending on the time period. The word Advent itself comes from the Latin word, little history lesson real quick, Adventus meaning arrival or coming. There are a few historical accounts that put the beginning of Advent as early as the 4th or 5th century, but largely most of what we know and practice today started in the Middle Ages and up into the late 1800s. But unlike most, advert, most modern Advent traditions, which have a single focus on the birth of Christ, most celebrations of Advent in ancient church history had a twin focus, which actually makes sense since we are on this side of the cross and, and this side of heaven. We, see, we look back to see Jesus' death on the cross, but we look forward that one day heaven will be there. So we live in the in-between. We live between Jesus' first coming and we live between Jesus' second coming. The Latin word Adventus was from the Greek word parousia, again, another quick history lesson, a word used both for the coming of Christ in human flesh, but also his second coming. So Advent then always tended to focus on both. For the first two weeks at Advent, the church would reflect on the second coming. Believers would humble their hearts, confess sins, and spend time hoping for the quick coming of the Lord. That is not a bad example for us to follow today. The last two weeks at Advent would then transition to focus on the first coming of Jesus, Christ in the manger. So any way we put it, Advent is a great season in the rhythms of our busy lives to recalibrate and to refocus our hearts and minds on who God is and what he has done for us. So let's take advantage of this season as a family and even as a church family. It's been said that we can live three weeks without food, three days without water and about three minutes without oxygen, but only seconds without hope. Hope is essential to the Christian life. So this first Sunday of Advent, we do celebrate hope. 
But what does the word hope actually mean? And how do we use that word today? And how does the Bible actually use the word hope? I'm glad you asked. Hope in our world today has fallen on some tough times and it could be more or less compared to wishful thinking. If we hope something will happen, we have no control over whether or not it will actually take place. It doesn't come with much guarantee. We say things like, I hope my team wins this weekend. And if you're an App State near, we did. If you're a Florida Gator fan, we just squeaked by. (laughs) Or we say things like, I hope I can take a nap after church today. If you have little ones, that's probably a no. Or we say things, I hope my in-laws leave after church today. If your in-laws in town, I'm sorry. Don't look at them right now. But we also say things like, I hope I get that job or promotion that I think I deserve. I hope I get that grade that I worked really hard for. Or sometimes we say, I hope the cancer doesn't come back. Hope seems to have lost meaning in our world today. And I wonder if it's because, I wonder if it's, if it's because we as fallen and finite people keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. We put hope in people and in situations and in circumstances that inevitably do what? They disappoint us. And because of those things, it makes us skeptical of hope, does it not? Am I the only person who makes this mistake? I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust people, but what I am saying is that it's so easily that sometimes our hope can get misplaced. But when our hope is in the right place, we can handle the disappointments, the frustrations, the setbacks, the persecutions of life. John Piper says it this way, Ordinarily, when we express hope, we are expressing uncertainty. But this is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope, he says. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation. If you're taking notes, that's a great way to explain it. It is a confident expectation, but he goes on to say, it's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope not only desires something good, it expects it to happen. Again, it expects it to happen. And not only does it expect it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is certainty there in biblical hope. This is true hope. Hope not in something, but actually someone. This is the hope that God wants you and I to have. And he wants us to have it in him, ultimately. Followers of Jesus should be the most hopeful people on the planet. They really should. Hopeful means full of Hope. But I know sometimes that Christians are not. This is why today's text of scripture is so important. So with that, if you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to flip open with Romans chapter five with me this morning. That's where we'll spend a majority of our remaining time this morning. It's been said that when a preacher preaches the text of scripture, it must have done a great work in his own heart and life. So needless to say, Romans chapter five has done that in my life over the last few months. This has been an anchor text for me and my family. Our souls have clung to this text. Romans 5 has actually changed the way I use the word hope in my daily vocabulary. So this morning, I wanna give you three reasons for hope this Christmas. If you're a note taker, this is a great time to take some notes. Again, three reasons that we can have hope this Christmas. Really, not just Christmas. Remember, it goes far beyond the 25th of December. We can have hope every single day of our lives for these three reasons. 
according to Romans chapter 5. The first reason is Jesus has come for us. We sang that song. Number two, Jesus is with us. We're going to see that in the text of Scripture. And number three, Jesus will come back for us. So you see a past, present, and a future hope that we have, all in who? Jesus. So what I would like to do this morning, I'd like to read the passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then ask God to pray, or ask God to bless our time this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm reading from the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible. That's the Bible we use with our middle school and high schoolers. It's a lot easier to understand than most, but if you have an NIV, ESV, NASB, or ADD, like me sometimes, that's okay. This is the Word of the Lord, Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Isn't that weird? But because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and character produces hope. Verse five says this, this is my favorite. This hope will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, we come to your word in complete submission, understanding that it is the great authority of our lives. So Father, I pray that your word will work in our hearts and our minds and that we, by your word, that we would be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, help us to see hope, hope that you want us to have, hope that has come, hope that is with us, and hope that is to come. And so, Father, I pray that you would be glorified, you would be worshiped, you would be honored in all that we say, think, and do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage starts out by actually reaching back into chapter four, some of the most important words at the very end, just two little words, not little words, really, But the words are our justification. And then the thought gets carried into chapter five with a therefore statement. Our justification. This is why Jesus has come for us because this justification is only possible because Jesus did come for us. This is his first coming. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation, the fact that the son of God took on human flesh and entered the world by way of a manger. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book, Mere Christianity, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Again, the Son of God became a man to enable men and women and boys and girls to become sons of God, to become children of God. The true story of Christmas isn't about a big man dressed in a red suit, but about a humble baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Christmas is not about a man sitting on his sleigh, but the son of man who went from a cradle and eventually to the cross and was raised to life and who is right now seated at the right hand of the father interceding for you and for me. This is what we need to be telling our children and reminding one another as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is a better story at Christmas that Jesus has come for us. Look at what Jesus did for us. There's a God in heaven who loves you and cares for you more than you can ever know or imagine. We can trust his heart and intentions towards us because he is God. 
The text says we have been justified by faith, not by our own works, but because of the finished work on Jesus Christ on the cross. This is our hope. And as we learned earlier, this is our confident hope. Have you ever thought about what life might like, what life might be like if Jesus didn't actually come? We would have no hope. If Jesus Christ never came for us, we would still be dead in our sins and at enmity with God. We would still be enemies of God. But the good news is that Jesus did come. And because of that, peace with God is possible. That's what the text says. If you are in Christ, there is a peace that cannot be taken away from you. No matter what, no matter the situations or circumstances of your life, this peace cannot be taken away from you. But this is a peace that will go on for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. You get the picture. This text goes on to say that we also have access to him. We have peace with God and now we have access to him. One pastor said it this way, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his own child. And that's the kind of access that we have. If we are in Christ, if we are the sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we have been brought back into fellowship with God the Father because of Jesus. But not only that, the text goes on to say, we also stand in his grace, but we don't stand with feet that are feeble, but feet that are firm. Our hope in Christ is not built on feelings. Because some days I know you're just not feeling it, and neither am I. But our faith in Christ is not built on feelings, but in the fact and foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me earlier this morning, how was your Thanksgiving? It was quiet and drama-free. For those of you who are laughing, you know exactly what I mean. And then with that, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The verse goes on to say, we rejoice or take confidence in the glory of God. We hope for it. But remember, it's a confident expectation that what God said he will do, he will do. But what does it actually mean to hope in the glory of God that seems like some big 30,000 foot understanding of the word glory? But the glory of God is the end which you and I were created for and one day we will be able to fully experience. Titus 2.11, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, or I don't remember if it was a couple months ago, depending on how fast Scott was going through Titus 2. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness, godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age. Verse 13 says this, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, who? Jesus Christ. I can't wait till we get to the end of the sermon. Because again, Jesus has come for us, Jesus is with us and Jesus will come back for us. That's the great hope that we have, the hope of the glory of God. This is what we look forward to. This is why we should boast in that hope. This is our confident expectation. Well, we could spend the entire time in just these two verses, and I know that would make Pastor Scott very, very proud. But let's move on to the second point. The first reason we can have hope this Christmas is that Jesus has come for us. As good of a reason that is, that's not the only reason we can have hope. The second reason is this, Jesus is with us. Or Jesus sustains us in our afflictions. We see that in verse three. And not only that, so we boast in the hope of the glory of God to come, but we also boast in our afflictions. That seems kind of backwards, doesn't it? 
But look at what Paul says. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know. It's almost like Paul has personal experience with affliction. Because he says, we know. So, but because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And character produces what? Hope. And this hope will not disappoint. So how is Jesus with us in these verses? You see, when we look at the Bible as one big story, we know that by the time that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, Jesus has ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he made some promises to his followers. He would not leave them as orphans. John 14, 16 says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. When a person comes to trust in Christ for salvation, they receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says this, verse 13, in him, Jesus, you were also sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. The Holy Spirit was given to continue the work that Jesus set out his followers to do. And in doing that work, they were, and we are sure to face some obstacles. We're sure to face some opposition. We're sure to face some persecution. The scripture says, for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. This is why Paul reminds, he writes what he writes, to remind followers of Jesus to not lose heart and to not enter in despair. It's easy to go there when it feels, again, feels like darkness is creeping in all around you, doesn't it? It reminds me of a story about a pastor who was preaching in Louisiana during the Great Depression. Electricity was just coming into that part of the country and he was out in a rural church that had just one little light bulb hanging down from the ceiling. Could you imagine the technology there? Light bulb goes out and just change the light bulb. Now you have to like get an apparatus to get up there. This one little light bulb hanging down from the ceiling and it lit up the whole church building. So I imagine it wasn't like this. It's probably much smaller. A little church in Louisiana. The pastor was preaching away and in the middle of a sermon, all of a sudden, the electricity went out and the place went pitch black. So maybe it was like a Wednesday night core course or core seminar. Maybe it was a Sunday night Bible study because it went completely black. He didn't know what to say being a younger preacher like myself. He stumbled around until one of the older deacons, see what I did there? Older deacons, so if they're in the back, he cried out, preach on preacher, we can still see Jesus in the dark. So I don't know what happened if he had his notes or whatnot. He, you know, can't imagine what would happen if he couldn't see his notes, but he was preaching because he was filled with the spirit. See, sometimes the only way we can see Jesus is in the dark. But the good news of the gospel is whether or not you and I can see Jesus in the dark is that he can see us. He is with us. He sustains us. He knows what we're going through. He knew what we were going to be going through, so he gave us his Holy, the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus is with us, Jesus sustains us in our afflictions. But let's talk about the word afflictions for a moment. The word afflictions here speaks not necessarily to the general troubles of this world because of the brokenness that sin has caused, but rather the troubles that Christians face because they take a stand for Jesus. Again, these are the troubles that Christians suffer for the sake 
of following Jesus. Suffering this way as a follower of Jesus was to be expected in the ancient world. Jesus himself tells us that trouble will come. It's not a matter if, but when. Matthew 5, he says this, Blessed are those who who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of thing or evil thing against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, a hope that looks forward. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a great Merry Christmas sermon. You will suffer for being a follower of Jesus. But we have hope, a hope that will not disappoint. So if you've ever been mocked or ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus, rejoice in that. Jesus tells us to. Paul tells us to. This is true for every man, woman, boy, and girl who is a follower of Jesus. 1 Peter 4 says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as this is something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. That is the hope of the glory to come. But one of the last encouragements that Jesus gave his disciples is John 16, I have told you these things. This is Jesus talking. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, or another translation say, take heart. I have overcome the world, or I have conquered the world. Christ is our victor. He has defeated sin and death. What else do we need him to do? This is why we sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. Anyone else? My comforter, my all in all, here in the love and the trust and the hope of Christ I stand. I don't know about you, if you you came in here this morning not feeling like singing, I want to encourage you to sing anyways. I want to encourage you to sing anyways. We need to minister to one another in this way. When we face these afflictions, we remind ourselves that they are not meaningless. These verses tell us to boast in them, to rejoice in them. It says this, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces. And it goes on to say, These afflictions are doing something. They are producing endurance. And endurance or perseverance, as some translations say, means to have the ability to keep pressing forward even in the face of strong opposition or great obstacles. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not give up, as easy as it is to do sometime. He says this, Even though our outer person is being destroyed, the CSB says, Our inner person is being renewed day by day through prayer, through Bible study, through the fellowship of God's people, through the encouragement of believers, through singing through one another, through praying together. Our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction. Paul, we kind of know his track record, and he says these momentary light afflictions Here's what he says. He said, they're producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. 
Again, looking forward to the hope of the glory. We look at Paul's track record as far as his track record of suffering. No one in this room wants this. But affliction is at work in the life of a believer. It, It produces endurance. It produces perseverance. You're able to put up with a lot of the junk in life, knowing that there is a greater hope to come, knowing that Jesus is with us. But this endurance doesn't just produce character, but proven character. Character that has been tested by fire and all the impurities have been removed. Then proven character produces hope, which proves that all of this is worth it. This is how we're able to boast in our afflictions because we know what the end product is. It could be said this way, that the ends justify the means as long, the, as long as the end is a greater hope in Jesus. We see that Jesus has come for us and that Jesus is with us, but the third reason we have hope this Christmas is that Jesus will come back for us. Verse five says this, this hope as a result of the affliction will not disappoint us because why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's interesting that the Christian Standard Bible, the, the, the one I'm using to study and preach from this morning, uses the word will not disappoint us. Again, a kind of a future looking hope. It's not just a past hope that Jesus came for us, nor a present hope that Jesus is with us, but a future hope that Jesus is coming back for us. This is a hope that will not disappoint us today, tomorrow, or even a million years from now. That puts in perspective, is what you're going through today or this week or last week, does it really compare when you think about a million years from now? Will it matter a million years from now? Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is mentioned as a down payment of the inheritance of the believer or a seal on the believer. Ephesians 1.14 says this, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory, a future looking hope. Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 say this, now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and has given us the spirits in our hearts as a down payment. Well, there must be something greater to come then if it's only a down payment. In other words, believers will indeed get what they hope for. God will do what he promised. The Holy Spirit is the down payment in our inheritance that is to come when Jesus comes back. This is why this hope that is a result of affliction will not disappoint us. But we must wait. We must be patient. We must trust God in our waiting. We must trust God in our affliction. You see, Revelation 21.4 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Can you imagine that day? No more grief, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Remember, Christ is our victor. Christ has defeated sin and death. God is a generous God. We see that in the second half of verse five. And since it's Christmas, it's safe to say that he is not the Grinch. I got a gasp over here. He is not a furry, pot-bellied, pear-shaped, snub-nosed creature with a cat-like face and a cynical personality. I know some people like that. Sometimes I can be like that. 
but God is not stingy. When it says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts, the literal translation there means that the great abundance of the Father has been poured out into our hearts, the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Holy Spirit was given to us means that God is a generous giver. He didn't have to give the Holy Spirit to us, but he did. 1 John 3.1 directs the hearer to see what great love the Father has given us or lavished on us. I can't think of a more luxurious word that the Father's love has been lavished on us. The verse goes on to say that we should be called children of God and we are. It's important to note that since we have been justified, we have a status that can't be taken away from us. We have a status that we stand in and a peace that we stand in, a hope that we stand in, and a grace that we stand in that cannot be taken away from us. Again, Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet, no matter the situations or circumstances in our lives. We have God's word. What else do we need? We have God's promises. What else do we need? We have Jesus. What else do we need? This should be the motivation for us to live our lives each and every day to faithful obedience to God and in service to others. What would your life look like if this is the hope you had each and every day of your lives? What would your marriage look like? What would your parenting look like? What would your relationships with believers and non-believers look like? You see, this kind of hope, a hope that has a confident expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, it changes the way you think, it changes the way you speak, changes the way you do things in your life. Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love that title. That's the Christian life. A long obedience in the same direction towards the cross of Christ. He says this, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not a fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned task, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. This is hope. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And I love this line. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him how, both how and when to do it. That is not hoping in God, but bullying God. And then he finishes his quote with Psalm 130, verses five through eight. It says this, I will wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, which meaning the night guard couldn't wait till dawn, couldn't wait till daybreak because their shift was over. But then it says this, verse seven, Israel, put your hope in God. Again, when our hope is in the right place, not in something, but in someone, life is much more bearable. Life is much easier, or much simpler when we understand the hope that we have. It says again, verse seven, Israel, put your hope in the Lord for there is faithful love with the Lord and with him is redemption in abundance and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. You see, hope waits and endures and is able to wait and endure when it is in the Lord. 
It isn't flimsy or merely wishful thinking. It is the confident expectation that God says he will do, that God says what he will do, he will do. Jesus has come for us. Jesus is with us. And Jesus is coming back for us. This is why you can have hope this Christmas.